Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, before we get started this week, a little bit of housekeeping, a bit of music news. I'm releasing Hardcore Heaven 2 this month. That's an announcement. So Hardcore Heaven was a EP that we did for Record Store Day UK this year, back in April. And people seem to like that. So there's another one coming out yay amazing etc it's final only but there is a digital version of one of the tracks which is coming out as a single this friday called true love so if you check the show notes you will find a link to a Bandcamp page a Bandcamp product where you can get hold of that and also pre-order the vinyl so yeah do that if you like the first one as quite a lot of you did because it sold out pretty quick and as with that one we're not doing represses so there is a limited press color vinyl splatter vinyl it's, it's really cool actually I, I like it a lot and um yeah limited press no represses available for pre-order right now on Bandcamp. so jet over and take a look while you're on Bandcamp, you can also see recent hot flush releases from closet Yi and bodhi and ackerman amongst others so you might want to check out some of that stuff too whilst you're there hotflush.bandcamp.com is the hotflush label page in case you were wondering but like i said yeah there are links in the show notes for you to jet over there direct so on to the podcast you'll have noticed from the title who it is obviously it's never a reveal is it when you're talking about podcast guests but this is a this is a conversation that's been in the works for a long time it's a conversation with someone who i've known for a long time too for over 20 years, actually. He is originally from the dubstep scene, but has moved around musically quite substantially. And this Friday is releasing Screamism 8, which is the first entry in 
a good, good few years of a series of releases that he started before dubstep really took off. So I should emphasize that Screamers of May isn't a dubstep release. And we talk about the uh, the content of Screamers of May in the conversation up the front, actually. But yeah, great to welcome Scream to the show. It's a really interesting conversation covering a lot of different topics. Not too much about dubstep, actually, although there are there is some discussion of what the scene was like, generally speaking, and his involvement in it in that kind of early 2000s period. But yeah, it's just um, nice to have him on and a really interesting conversation, which I think you're going to enjoy. So I guess we should dive into it. Just before that, reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. If you wanted to support what we're doing here, that'd be very nice of you. There are two very reasonably priced tiers, the lower of which is barely price of a cup of coffee and you know much less than the price of a beer in london so that'd be nice of you follow the spotify playlist there's a bunch of scream music of course in that playlist this week and join us on the discord if you've got anything to say about the show at all hotflushrecordings.com slash discord gets you into that discord server it is a hot flush server but there are podcast channels in there too Oh, and there is one more thing I need to mention, actually, which is that there is a Screamism weekend takeover of Fabric in London on the 20th and 21st of October. And I am playing back to back with Chloe Robinson on the 21st. That's a Saturday night. So, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. If you're in London, then, yeah, definitely come down for a dance. That's going to be awesome. Okay, without further delay, here is Scream. Green, welcome to the show. How you doing, mate? <laughs> What's happening, bro? You all right? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Um, you're in New York at the moment. I am. Just woke up overlooking uh, overlooking Williamsburg. Actually, that, that makes it sound like I've woke up just overlooking Williamsburg, like randomly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I am, um, yeah. Just out in New York. Got um, an electric zoo on Saturday. I'm doing Beats in Space later tonight with, with, with Big Man Sweeney. Okay. Nice. And getting some work, net, doing, getting some networking done. Yeah. Is this in preparation for Screamism 8? Is that kind of what's going on? Uh, I guess so, yeah. I was listening to the previous Screamisms just just earlier in the, in the last hour. I didn't realize there's been such a big gap, but I guess of course there has, right? Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Like, because when it was, I, it was only, I only found out the other day how long it, well, not the other day, that's a right exaggeration, but I mean, it was... I didn't realise it had been so long because where they were they were so consistent. Like I mean, with release wise, when they were coming, there was sort of like there was one a summer, wasn't there? Really, mm. and um, it, I, I didn't realise it had been that long. And to be honest, I didn't think I was ever going to do one again for obvious reasons because they were sort of associated with with dubstep and whatever. And, and then it was quite mad how this one come about because it was it sounded like a screamism to me when I sort of put this. This the, put it, the the project together, let's say, mm. but it was it was it was mad because there was a, there's actually a scrapped screamism mate, which I done, which was which was all one fourteen, which was which was it was a dubstep screamism, like it was, but for me it didn't. Um, I like Scott, my manager, obviously who you know, he so we had one plan and then I scrapped it last minute. <laughs> My, my what, what did uh, what did Scott have to say about that? He said, "Are you fucking joking?" <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was basically what what happened was it was 
but during lockdown, I made a lot of music, and then I started writing one forty again. And um, basically, it what it was is screamisms were never about. It was always about what I was doing in a moment of time, and it sounded to me that like I was trying to make old music, which which if you listen to the screaming and stuff, it was never about, it was never that. It was, it was always quite forward thinking, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, because I mean, you, I mean, you just said that there's sort of, um, I guess the screamers name as associated with dubstep, but there was always loads of different stuff on those releases. It wasn't, I mean, obviously there was the kind of the 140 framework, but there was always lots of different stuff in there. Well, I mean, if you think about, if you think about tracks like, like losing control, like really, that didn't it? It didn't. It fitted mine and Benga's demographic, but if you if you think about like the, the the sound on a whole, it didn't really like it. wasn't wasn't sort of half step. It was like well, it was, but I mean, it was me and Benny would always have them little tangents where it was a lot more electro and techno influenced, I guess. Yeah. Like where so it was just always I like basically the what the, the sorry I keep saying basically for some reason it's really irritating me. Um, um, it well this this one that I put together the what was going to be screaming as a mate. I tried to make a dubstep EP, which I'd never tried to make anything before. If that makes sense, mm. it was just what I was making. So then that was basically the reason I scrapped it because it just didn't feel screamism to me. Mm. Um, I feel like you see when I say screamism, I feel like I'm talking about myself in the third person. But you get me, <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, yeah. I, so I'm and I'm really glad that I did scrap it and this one came together how it did because it was a lot more organic. Right? How would you um, or can you define screamism, mate? Because I have heard it, but I mean, how would you describe it? Because there's quite, as I said, there's there's some different stuff going on there. Yeah, I, I'd I'd put it as. I put it as a retrospective record. Hmm. Um, and when I say that, I mean, like I'm, I'm more associated with sort of minimal tech house, but like, like whatever. Well, but at the same time, I'm also associated with kind of always being able to do what I want. Yeah. Um, and I think this, I'm very comfortable after lockdown. The only, like the only, the, the, for me, I really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed having studio time every day and it's, it's the most, it's the most comfortable I've felt on a record for, I think maybe ever. Mm. Yeah. Um, but if I was to describe it, I'd say it's, it's a retrospective look at my career. Um, in a way I'm meaning for those things like, like I've, there, there is no rule on it. Um, and which I, I kind of always tried to work um, and maybe it hasn't been as noticeable over over recent years, but I feel like it's it's it's, it's got that screamism ethos to a degree. Where the, the the way I've been explaining it is, I've been saying it's a very retrospective record, but it still doesn't sound like anything I've done before. It's interesting that you say you enjoyed lockdown. I sort of did too, for the same reason. But I mean, you've always been kind of legendarily prolific so did you just make like literally hundreds of tunes well what happened what, like so look you know this when you're touring all the time you get into the routine so look you get home let's say monday or sunday night realistically by the time your head's back together it's wednesday 
So then when you're making songs, you've, you're automatically thinking about Friday or Saturday. Mm, yeah. So you automatically make music with dance floor in mind. It's so distracting, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's also, you become, you start to write music for the common denominator. And I, I really enjoyed not having the pressures, not the pressures of clubs because you only put the pressure on yourself, but it's like, oh, I need to quick. I need to make a banger for Friday. And then what that does is, is, is you write stuff quick and as again, common denominator, that's no, that's not criticism to the common denominator. It's just how, I, it's how, especially in this day and age of, of, of sort of Instagram and everything and the way the crowds have changed. That's how, it's just the way I have to uh, describe crowds is as common denominator because there's, you have a group of 10, maybe two of them are really into music. The other eight are there for, to just be in the club. Mm. Um, and I really like the pressures of not, of just being able to do what I wanted because I felt like for the first time in ages, I felt I've really fell in love with my studio again. Like I could really spend time playing with like my, my, my sort of my semi-modular stuff and, and just actually having time and not having to think shit, I've got oh, shit. I quickly need to finish this. And it was, I really started writing all tempos again. And it was kind of how I ended up writing at one forty again because I was just, I had the time to do it. Mm. Although look, financially it was a fucking shit I looked down. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, other than that, I really, it was, I was with my family every day and I was like writing and it was other than the, the sort of bleak, <laughs> never knowing where, if normal life's going to come back. Other than that, I, I did enjoy it. I, I turned into a fat fuck, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I mean, I really, I had time to experiment and I think that's where me at my best is when I've, I've sort of, I'm given free reign. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the point about being prolific is, is that something that's just a sort of legend that's just emerged or, I mean, how does that, how does that work in practical terms? Like, in, I mean, is it true that you do make hundreds of tunes? I've never quite known what to, what to, what to make of that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it is true. I've always, um, like even we, we can go back to like even if we go back to 2001 2002 it's um i like i, I was always known to turn up to big apple with with a mini disc with about 30 tracks on mm. but it's just the way my head worked like i'm just i'm like a sponge especially around that time like 2002 2003 where i was working in big apple in the in the daytime and then my lunch break I'd go and spend in Beano's like, which was the second the biggest second hand record store in Europe so I just I just I, I, I like soaking stuff up so mm. then I'd, I'd try and I'll write like 10 sketches at once um, like just keep hitting save new version and, and just keep going so ultimately there's there's not one song that I've ever made that hasn't got about 8 versions like in the process Yeah. so it's I don't know if that's prolific. It's just, it's just the workflow. But I mean, I have been known to write a lot more than other people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you put that down to? Can you explain it at all? Um, it's, it's just searching for, look, the, like it's, I've, I've said this in interviews before, but when, when I sort of started school, I'm up and, and I, I actually, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And everyone sort of seemed like they knew what to do, even at 11 or 12. It was when I heard um, Sunships uh, try me out and I, I'd never felt, I'd, there's like a key change at the start. Hmm. And I had this twinge, I was on the phone to a girl and uh, like this twinge 
uh, for hearing the song. I was like, what the fuck just happened? And what it is, is I'm, I, I, I repeatedly work until I, I feel a similar feeling. So I'm constantly just hunting for that, for that same vibe I felt the first time I'd heard that song and made me realise that I fucking really like music. And I'm always, it's, sometimes it's a fucking, it's, sometimes it's a curse because I just don't, it, it, it can be dependent on mood. I, I, I will never find that feeling in a day. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say, it sounds like almost like a compulsive thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like, it's, I've, I've definitely got an impulsive streak. Yeah, okay. I love it. I just love it so much. And it is, it's that, like, I, I keep going back to lockdown because I did actually, a lot of people, like, look, in some of my mental, like, mental ways, I, I, it was really horrible because just not knowing what the fuck was going on with my life. But I mean, I just, I really liked, like, I loved the freedom. And then, I, I, and then, yeah, again, I fell in love. I really fell in love with the studio again. And as much as I've sort of known for, um, let's say being in the nightlife world a lot. And it seems like I really enjoy it. I've realized how much I fucking actually like, just, I guess just being in the studio and like the creative process of it, because I mean, you know what it's like touring and that all the time is, and especially when you have to, when you have like um, a reputation like mine, it, it looks like I just love being in clubs and love being at it and on it and whatever. But really I've realized how much, I actually prefer, I actually, like, I'm a, I'm, like, as much as I've, like, DJing for me is, is, it's just a, like, it's like, it's like smoking. Well, it's, it's, it's just a standard. It was just what I've done all my life, hmm. whether it be in local social clubs or whatever. So that never felt like, I never thought that would be a job. But when I started making music, I was like, yuck, this is something I could fucking do forever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, what I got out of lockdown, and certainly it's sort of a similar thing. It's all, it reminded me of in, in the period where I was just doing it all the time and before there was any sort of expectation around it, and it was just pure enjoyment. It's fucking amazing. Like the, like the time, the times when you're learning actually what you want to do with your life, I guess. Does that make sense? Where you find, we finally found your calling or your thing. I mean, because I mean, I didn't really fully appreciate that how much that had gone away from my sort of studio experience did you have that sort of thing too i mean it, it sort of dawned on me at some point during lockdown i was like shit i haven't had this much fun i haven't yeah fun the fun's the right word yeah i'll tell you what it was i started up like you know I'm, a, I'm obsessed with making things work that shouldn't like not trying to invent new well actually i guess trying to invent new genres right and i was like so i was just before lockdown i'd been working on this um this sort of sound like it was, it's, I was calling it Esky hardcore. So it was like classic hardcore sort of drums. Like when we talk, we're talking sort of um, early nookie, like no, 18, well, like 92, 93, you know, that sort of, oh, yes. that, that changing point where people were sampling house, putting breaks over it. And then, but with Esky, like really classic Wiley Esky simps from the, from the Triton. Yeah. And then I never really had enough time to finesse it, but I was working on it. I was sure of it. I was really sold that this was, because it was two iconic UK sounds in one. And for me, it really worked at the time. Anyone, everyone I sent it to said, this is fucking mad. And then like six years later, like, well, about, literally, <laughs> about six years later, when sort of Sherelle came about, I started sending it out to people again. They were like, oh, this is amazing. But then you see like, because it, because it, because, so this is pre-lockdown, it was people didn't have enough time to 
sort of get into stuff because they're all they're thinking about is their show on the, on Friday or Saturday. And I talk about Friday and so you'll I'll, you'll notice throughout this, I refer to I'll I'll say Friday and Saturday a lot because it's I think weekend like, especially when you when you're in that cycle, in like constant touring cycle, that is, it's, it's so different. Monday to Thursday is so different. Friday yeah, and Saturday. It just dictates everything else, doesn't it? It's yeah. Crazy. And it's, but it's, it kind of, it puts a sort of wall, a, like a wall in front of you, I think, because all you, again, going back, you, you just focused on the common denominator. Mm. And I think from where we, me and you came up in a thing where, there was no such thing as the common denominator. It was a load of fucking weirdos. Like who, who sort of, it was like who found other weirdos. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, cause the, the, even the term common, don, common denominator, I'd never have known then because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't associate with the common denominator. We was literally the complete opposite. So I think that's, that's, I think that's when it's, uh, I suppose it's the equivalent of, of being, becoming a CEO right. rather than, you know, that part where people make really exciting companies or whatnot. And then it, they just, they just end up being the boss. I'm, I'm not, I'm not so referencing myself as a boss. I'm just using this as an example, but in, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think every, every producer, I think that becomes a successful DJ experiences this. And I, I think for a lot of people, it's, it's really damaging to their music. Yeah. You know, I think lots of people, Lots of producers who are great just lose their way be- because of that. The box, like my, remember my second album, outside the box, and it was it was that was I think what we're talking about now is is what I called the box because you, it's that uh, the early days when no one's interested, you can do what the fuck you like, and because you're just still finding either whether it be your sound or finding what tickles your fancy or whatever, and it's when there's no pressures because no one knows who the fuck you are, so you've just got that experimenting time. And back for lockdown for me again, there was a point. So like I was doing the Esky Hardcore. I went back to the Esky Hardcore thing during lockdown. I was like, fuck me, this shit's actually really good. And um, and then but I started doing things like, like merging fucking Indian garage or like, like is it, the thing is when I hear myself talking about it, like when I've, I've had, I've sort of said this to some people, they're like, you've always done that. I'm like, well, I don't think I did for a period of time. Mm. Especially when I when I went from dubstep to to sort of playing house and whatnot, it was I felt I was trying to conform into another world, which made me like listen to other people's tunes and try and make songs like that, which was also I think that I'd never ever done. There's never a point where, up until I guess maybe like the sort of early Koki era. That was where I was like, but that like I always looked at that as creative competition with me and Koki. It was like who can make the biggest banger. But I mean, I still sounded like me. And I think when I started making, getting into house production, although that like you remember, there was I sent you house tunes fucking years ago. Do you remember that? Mm. It was I think it was I called it French house or something. It was like mm-hmm. that you you were the only person I sent it to, but it was like um, it's like a house song. But when I, I I remember hearing it back, and it sounds like a fucking playstation demo <laughs> but i mean i mean it was like going back so going back to what we're talking about like like with, with the lockdown thing i was just i realized that like my look my songs and my production ain't always the best but i'd always like to think that there's a, no matter what i'm writing it sounds like me mm. whether it be like 
it, it doesn't, I'm better when I don't conform to my surroundings. Yeah, I think people who make music, which is sort of personal and, I mean, because I, I think in electronic music, there's a lot of, well, there's, there's a lot of by the numbers production which goes on. And there's a lot of production which is specifically trying to achieve a particular goal. I mean, usually a commercial goal. Yeah. Right? And, you know, I don't think anyone can accuse you of that. And, you know, I think anyone who who is of that mindset, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think all your, all your stuff sounds like you, you know. And, and actually, someone said this to me the other day, um, commenting on my stuff and, and, you know, my sort of dabbling with different genres just sounds like me trying to do a different genre. And that's a bit of a backhanded compliment, but, but I think that's the same sort of thing with, with, with your stuff, you know? Well, I wouldn't know how to take that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you can kind of see where they're getting at, right? Yeah, cool. Still sounds like you. Yeah. Do you know the other thing is technology plays a big part in, 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 um, in how music is now. Because look, we're, we're, if we're talking like Ableton templates, uh, preset packs, etc etc i think everybody like i think if you get into tech house you're just you want to make tech house whereas i think because it's there it's it's a lot easier and look previous generations of producers would have said this about me and benny using a playstation and on and things but it's just moving with technology but i mean the limitation like the limitations were great mm. like i mean when we was using the PlayStation, it was like you two second sampling, which then I suppose you could go back to like early Akai days where it was you had a like three second sampling or yeah. whatever. But I mean, I think where there's so much more money in dance music, I hate that fucking term dance music, but do you know what I mean? It's people know, sort of have a slight idea what they want to do, rather as I think a lot of people miss out on this creative phase where. Where I, I always felt I didn't know what I wanted to make. Mm. I just knew that I really enjoyed it and that I really enjoyed experimenting. Whereas now, if, like, say, for example, you buy an Ableton template, your arrangement, your everything's there set out. So and then you've got the same channels, like effects chains, and then whoever buys that has got the same effects chain because if you're buying an effects chain, ultimately you're not really even checking the effects chain and actually learning and going for it. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've done, like I'm rambling, no, not but- at all. I mean, I've I've often asked myself, I think particularly recently, whether it's too easy now to make stuff which is okay. You know, well, I said kind of good enough. You know, and I think it's particularly true with. Well, I mean, tech house is a bit of a. It's an unfortunate. Um, you know, it's the kind of horse that gets beaten. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yeah, no, yeah. But the thing is, look, the term tech house to me is floor plans. So it's I, I will still, I, I still openly use the term in 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 a non derogative way. Like, I, like for me, that beauty, you know, that spot, like floor plan, is is the is the I think the goat example. Yeah, um, tech house. But then even you go back to Eddie Richard, that was tech house, right? Yeah, I mean, it used to, it didn't used to have quite the same connotations it does now. But I mean. But I mean, the um, like I mean, you brought up the you know Ableton Tech House is such a kind of like typical <laughs> kind of entry level music tech thing, but it's so easy to achieve, right? And I'm and I just yeah. I just wonder whether that there's no identity. That's the thing. And I think what you find is, look, if I go through, I oh, fuck it, I don't really, like. I used to be renowned for always giving feedback on promos and going through every promo. But I mean, at them at the moment, it's fucking impossible. It's impossible because. You you get on like 
they, they all, I find it, it fucking really blows my mind that how many mix downs from different sources all sound <laughs> the fucking same. Yeah. And then the thing is, I'm like, I try and like achieve a mix down to like, to, to get in, to see if I can do it to make it sound like that. And I can't. And then I, I downloaded an Ableton template just to do like, like a test. And it sounded like <laughs> everything fucking else can listen to in my promo. It, re- it really twisted my head. I was like, what the fuck? Because I thought there was a higher um, quality of, of sort of standard mix down, which mix down have never been my friend. So it was like, I started thinking, fuck me, all, all these kids are like really good now. And then I realized it's actually, look, that's not actually that. I could sound like a right arse saying that. But what I mean is it was, it's, there's a, it's, it's, you can have a really easy entry level and sounds better than people who've been doing it forever. That's that's what I mean. Absolutely. I mean, what do you think that having that available to you? Because I mean, you know, you you started when you were obviously really, really young. And um, I I guess part of it, I mean, you know, I was, I was pretty young as well to be fair when I started, but. uh, Have you ever been young? I don't ever remember you being young. (laughs) Well, I mean, I've never been, I've never been younger than you. That's true. (laughs) <laughs> do you know the worst thing so just I'm not touching an age you know how fucking horrible it is now that I'm not the youngest <laughs> and, and I'm starting to become the oldest in the room it's really fucking strange treatment for me but do you I mean how do you think it would have been well what, what do you think would have been different for you when I listen back to old things like like I always resented that like my mum and dad tried to get me into uh, into the piano when I was younger and as I've got older I resent being a fucking young idiot and thinking people would think I'm a geek and whatever. But then at the same time, I wouldn't have made the songs I made because I've become obsessed with imperfections, making things beautiful. And I think that's what gives things charm. Even like with people, it's the same with people. Their imperfections can be like, say someone's a bit daft. It's like, Oh, you go like, but it's their character. And I think there's a lot of music lost, sorry, lost character. And I, I don't like things sounding perfect. Like in it's, I think everything sounds is it's. You're starting at forty percent rather than zero, which which is great. If it just depends what your end goal is. I want my stuff to sound like me. Whereas I don't think if you if I I ask if I ask a lot of producers like, what do you want to sound like? They'll automatically say, oh, like I want I want songs played at DC Tenor or like whatever. So then they'll listen to songs that are being played out and then just try and not replicate, but they want something that sounds like that. I've never wanted anything that sounds like anything else. And um, it's, it's my, it's taken me, honestly, it's taken me 20, what, it's 22 years. But I've been producing for longer than that. But I mean, it's, I've, I've only got to the point now where I can hear what I want to do in my head and get it out, which is, I never thought that would be possible. Like I used to dream about songs and shit, wake up and try and recreate it and it just wouldn't work. But I've got to the point now where I can sort of hear saying and do it. Um, and that's, that, that's like, that's, so for me, I'm just starting out now because I've got to that point. So, but it's, it's, I think if you, if, when, if you assume that you can just start at 40%, that, and that's like, so, so say the Ableton being, the Ableton project being 40%, then you think you're better than you are because you can get it to sound like other people's song. But when I mean that's not wanting your own identity, you just want it to want it to be the same. Like you'd want it to be as good as saying else. But I mean, I, again, I don't want. I 
revert to trying to make the weirdest shit that doesn't sound like anything else around. Do you think if those do you think if those tools had been available to you when at the very very start that it would have changed how you developed in a significant kind of a way? Yeah, hundred percent, without a shadow of a doubt. Because I mean, see, all of us. When I say us, I mean that early post garage pre dubstep sort of thing. There was your identity was a very big thing. So like, look, there was it was me and Benny. There was your, your, your like, hot flush lot, and then there was you sort of had you had your sore slaughter mobs. Then that distance and. It was, we came through a time of, we, it was, look, you remember what it was like going, like getting your CD ready for yeah. forward and whatever. And it was like, it wasn't okay to sound like someone else. Mm. And it was, it become a thing. So look, it started off the Croydon thing, but I mean, that was, there was definitely specific sounds like, I suppose before the Bristol sort of sound, but there was like Slaughter Mob from West you from north but there was like defining there was like five pockets of sound but it was like each person individual it weren't like necessarily crews mm. and it was it was you had to stand out i guess yeah and but that was what makes that early part so exciting when you actually listen back to it, it was like look think of the first dubstep wars every person no one sounded like the one before yeah and that was the whole point it was like you had to find your own thing and that was what made it exciting but then exciting now is is having a tune that's playable and gets you gigs. Because ultimately now is you can't really, I don't know many people who earn money out of making music. And then the because of things like Instagram, it's it's all about, everything's about earning money and being able to be flash or being able to like be perceived as successful. Whereas success for me is, is like them early, like, being successful for me was having a song played out on a, on a Wednesday at forward or that was, I thought I'd made it then. Yeah. And it was a different end game for me than I think a lot of people have got now. It was much less, there was a much less obvious path. And like you say, like, which just means like your expectations or your parameters for success are just that much lower. I don't even want to say lower though. Do you know what I mean? It's just different. That's it. The thing is success now is dictated by somebody else. So whether it be like I, I, I fucking I look, we can get we'll get into this at some point, but I detest Instagram. I, like I, I seriously detest it, and I'll, I'll tell you why later, like later in the conversation, because I don't really need to get into it right now. But success for me, right, is fucking getting a getting a a letter from a bailiff and fucking and being able to pay it. That's success for me, right? Like just being able to no, but I like just what I mean is just being just being able to to do what you're doing and sort of be happy and, and be able to, to, to be able to just yeah. Yeah. not like, just be able to keep yourself doing what you want to do rather than having to do something you don't yeah. like that's a success for me. Like, especially like when you see people say running themselves into the ground and like working their ass off. Like, I mean, like not, I'm not talking about music industry, I'm just being in life. Mm. I mean, I, I'll always feel successful just being able to do, have a job that I love, you know, like I ain't bothered about, uh, my Instagram is fucking is majority of fucking late night drunken fucking audio clips of like like that's just being able to do that to me is successful. I don't I couldn't give a fuck about videos of when people are constantly posting videos on private jets or fucking that, that's not successful. Me. Successful me is just being able to do what I do. Do you know what I mean? 
And that's because it was, I, de- I still believe it's the way I, I come up into it. It was, I, I believed that I didn't think you could get paid for DJing. And I, I remember someone telling me that EZ earned a thousand pounds for a gig. And I was like, fuck off. <laughs> You're having an absolute wind up here. A thousand pounds. Are you joking? And then obviously when you get later in, later in, in sort of thing, you know, that thousand pound really is fuck all like on, on a, on a scale of DJ, what you can earn. But I mean, like success for me was, was having a song played at Velvet Rooms. Like I thought I fucking cracked it then. So, but then now what's six, what's class as success now is an unachievable goal. Mm. Like it's you, it's like sort of Kardashian area of fucking Andrew, like fucking Tate. And, and it's like, it's this level of like insane, obnoxious richness. It's not really, it's fucking, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's unachievable, but I mean, it, it's not, it's not realistic. It's definitely not the common denominator. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah. Um, certainly when I started playing house and sort of getting involved in that kind of a world, it was a pretty eye-opening experience, I have to say, um, in terms of what you've just been describing, actually. Obviously, it's like it's ramped up quite a lot in the sort of 10 or so years since then. Yeah. But it was it was, it was was very, very obviously different to, well, I mean, I'm, the early dubstep scene is an extreme example, but like, you know, like mainstream house and techno is is a different world financially and just in terms of like the kind of global exposure you get when you moved over, I'm guessing you must've had a similar sort of, um, psychological journey there. Like, you know, were you, when during the, the, the period of like what I had a, I had an extreme fucking block because what happened was, so I'd been, I'd been working on the transitional stage. So I started changing tempos. I've become, I was making sure that people was aware that I was changing tempos in my set. So whether it be going from a dubstep song to a mumbaton song, then being able to go up from 110 to sort of, let's say, body commercy. I was making that, even when I was playing back to about Benny, I'd be like, look, give me, I want a 30-minute section where I can get, so I was was slowly easing people into me playing different tempos. And what happened was that was all going amazingly swimmingly and then the the dubstep is dead fucking headline came out in the fucking Daily Star or whatever it fucking was. And like, sorry, it really still infuriates me. Says Dan, if I ever see the fucking journalist, I will give him a slap for it. It's it we it fucked everything because then I, I had to stop and constantly answer the same fucking question about like telling people I didn't say that. You remember yeah. that fucking? You remember everyone remembers it, but I was really it would have been it would have gone so much smoother hadn't like i mean look really like realistically like, i've had quite a smooth it, it was it, like publicly it would be classed as a smooth transition but i mean it, it it took a year longer than it should have done because i was ended up in that ask constantly answering the same fucking question mm. about why did you say that why did you say i was like i oh, fucking never i was like anyone like anyone was there at that point i was in a room with mallard plastician fucking hatchet like loads of people so no one ever heard me say that mm. um and I've, like, I became, it, I, I, it was literally, I felt like I took a year out of the path that I was moving to, to end up answering the same fucking boring question. But I mean, I, where I worked in Big Apple, like how, and my brother played house and, and I was, I like artwork and everyone obviously they did Bobby Blanco, Mickey Moto. I was like the, the bit, a lot of people forget is I've worked in a record shop from when I was about 12. So I was never, it was like, 
even like if we go back to garage, I mean, like like Grant Nelson, like nice and ripe and everything. That to me, that's house, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but forgetting about the music for a moment, just to, just in terms of the way that scene is in comparison. It's, well, look, <laughs> look. It's a prime example. I don't remember anyone in in early dubstep days having a tour manager. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good yeah. illustration, right? And then, because I remember being out and like the first sort of person I knew with a tour manager was Jamie Jones. Right. And it almost become like a trend thing. Oh, shit, Jamie's got one. Well, I've got to get one. Not me. I don't mean me. I mean, but just anyone around us. Because then there was a, an influx in having a tour manager. And I was like, in my head, I was always just like, but you're turning up to a club with decks all set up. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, it was only later. It was only later doing the Magnetic Man project that I, I actually learned what a tour manager's role is and what they're meant to do and, and uh, what a good one does and a bad one doesn't. And but I mean, yeah, the, that that sort of transitional period of, of of stuff around you. I mean, where I sort of got in with like it was it was Seth, Damien, and Jamie who I really sort of got in with, got along with. Um, so they were still a bit, it was sort of that Ket House era, do you know, like yeah. sort of early Hot Creations, early Paradise. So they, they, the crew I got in with reminded me of people I grew up with, mm. but on a personal level, rather so than like, like scene level. Yep. So I sort of went, got in with like, with people and attitudes that I was, I was, um, I'd sort of were familiar with. Yep. But then when you sort of get into the, not going to mention names actually because it fucking just end up causing me grief. But I mean, the people from the superstar DJ era, which like I'm, I'm talking early, you know, oh fuck, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to like that superstar DJ era from the uh, from the late nineties, you know, like right people who worked with rap, like rap like hip hop stars and whatever, like which wasn't normal, you know, that era, mm. which. Which fucking turned out to be the seediest era of fuckers ever, but, but but I mean, like it was I, I felt comfortable with the people like like Seth. Me and me and Seth met on a plane, for example. We we had a, like we was talking for hours, and we at no point either of us asked what we done for a living. I just got on with this guy on a plane, and it was like we bumped into each other backstage. This is when I still played dubstep, and he was like, "What are you doing here?" I'm like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" He was like, "I'm DJing." I'm like, "So am I." Oh shit! So, <laughs> on a plane, and honestly, that's why me and Seth, Seth, we are so fucking close, and I think it's it's because of things like that. So, where like socially, I've always um, that's always been my my stronger point, but it's also been the bit I enjoy. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with the way people work, and I'm obsessed with people. I love meeting people, so. I'm glad I got in with the people not talking about music. It was actually just people that I felt like I resonated with. And I was like, look, I'm, there is always that way my head works. I always know what I'm doing. Like in a sense of people forget that I've actually, I've been in it's sort of industry since a kid. So it was I, like, I knew I wanted to find the people that I made myself comfortable with and I could, I could make a home at and then fucking sort of go for it. Mm. But I mean, the, 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 the chain, like the differences in, like I'm talking about even things like guest list is so much fucking different in, in like, let's say, look, cause we, cause we're referring to, to like our, our early experiences to, to current. Like, I mean, I mean, look, I knew my guest list was in the car with me. Now I'm like, fucking, I've got 35 people. I don't even fucking know. <laughs> like, 
And it's just standard. It's just, can you imagine that? At like forward, someone sending you like 15, 20 names you've never heard of. You go, well, you're taking a piss, mate. But now it's just, it's just standard. I mean, it was, I think I got really into the party side of, of, of sort of house and, and, and techno and whatnot. And, and like whilst, and I found it so where I wasn't making the music and I, and I realized such strong DJ element and DJs were sort of the main sort of thing. It was, so I took to being in clubs a lot more, uh, finding out very early that it, it, it's the party scene is sort of really guided it more so than, I mean, like when we're talking about plastic people that, I mean, it was sort of me and my brother were renowned as the sort of parties, but I mean, it was, it wasn't guaranteed that you was going back to someone's house and sit being partying for two, three days. Do you know what I mean? It was, you'd go back to a fucking dodgy flat in Dalston or saying fucking smoke a couple of spliffs, do whatever and then go home. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's just, it is completely unparalleled world. And unless you was a part of that early, especially dubstep room, I don't think you can, you can even ever begin to talk about how different the fucking worlds are. Totally. What was the, what was the order? Like, did you get, did you realize you wanted to be playing house and then got into the scene or was it? Um, so it was sort of ultra. I was, it was doing ultra and I was touring with Skrill and, but at the same time I'd been working with Bodica and Damon and, um, and Debridge working. So when I was doing sort of outside the box, which was what, 2010, I think. And I was, I was getting really excited. Like the, like, you know, my love for the autonomic sound and like, it was the autonomic sound and instrumental and debridge like a pivotal. I don't mention enough that their influence on me is probably, well, they might end up getting fucking hate mail for this, but they was working with them. And I felt so fucking excited about music again. And I realized I hadn't felt that for a while because I got into this template sort of um, like playing like American, like white America, for ED, like, like I, I don't even read that calling it dubstep. It's like EDM. Right. Hmm. And I was like, fuck. And like, I was I spending a lot of time on the Island, you know, the Bodica studio. And I was just like, this is, it felt like 2004 again in, in like my, my productive and creative juices flowing and like actually really fucking being excited to turn up back there and work you know yeah i've got to say those those autonomic podcasts changed my life it's not an exaggeration they really did i sent that link like the the um the layer uh you know the layer like the yeah. the, the site is autonomic.com like, i sent that to as many people as possible because i think it's an injustice that people haven't if they haven't heard that music yeah and I especially I send it to a lot of younger producers and go like, go through these and hear the fucking, like you've never heard shit like this before. Mm. And it's like, that is it also, there's, there's a lot of um, similarities. Like I'm not going to say in production level, because there's some of the best produced tracks fucking ever on them, on them autonomic podcast. But I mean, I could understand why I really enjoyed it. When, if you go back to sort of mine and Benny's really early fucking, like demos like when we was learning how to make music it's like it's it's like a really exciting phase where you're not in a box and you're creating your own box i mean so i mean actually to be honest let's let's talk about autonomic more because they haven't really well, i haven't talked about them much on the on the show before and like i said it genuinely opened my eyes to what is possible 
really. Because, I mean, they, they took so much stuff. Actually, I really love the influences sections as well, you know. So, like, I would listen to those tunes and be like, wow, how can they, how is this going to influence them? And then there'd be the, the autonomic mix, and it'd be like, fucking hell, how did they get from there to there? It was machine music, right? And it was, it was them who got me into, it was them who massively got me into analog gear and output gear and, and there's a whole process of, I was, I was, I was very much in the box until then because obviously my, me and Benny were sort of the, sort of the start of in the box production, I guess. Like where we was like, it's, yeah, like, I mean, especially that like, thing when our, our contemporaries and all the people we were surrounded by was artwork said by us, they'll be like actually surrounded by it. And that was, we were trying to replicate what they was doing, but I mean, you know, that side, it was when I started working again, I have to mention it's the, the island because I made the, so anyone who doesn't know the island is, is, is where Bodica's studio is. And it's like, it's on its own island, hence it being called the island. But I mean, um, it, it was when I used to go there, I used to get, I used to be so excited to go back there and I'd, I'd be there. I'd drive him mad. I'd be there as much as I possibly could. And it reminded me, it used to remind me of like when I used to do the post at Big Apple and I'd, I'd do the post outside Arthur's studio and I used to get excited to go and do the post so I could listen to what he was making. But it was the autonomic thing for me was, I think where it was, it's not drum and bass. No, it's not at all. <laughs> like it's not drum and bass. It's not yeah. drum and bass. It's it's machine music, isn't it? It's like machine funk. Like it, it, I, I, it ties in with Dame Funk and people like that, and and, and Jay Electronica more so than it does with anyone else in drum and bass. Like, or, or I mean, there's some sort of some source direct stuff that that it, some of it reminded me of, but there's obvious reasons for that <laughs> that we know why it, it would remind us of source direct, right? Um, but I mean, it was for me. I just felt like I felt like a kid again like a learning and like hearing and like what you said is like the influences part where it was like, I found so much music from them influences part. And you're like, you're like, but no, but these are a drum and bass. Yeah. Like how are they listening to, 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 to let's say Dame Funks. And, and then especially like fucking there was like old craft work stuff. And then there's, there's it re, then the, the influences made so much sense when you actually then listen to the autonomic bit. Right. Yeah. It was just, honestly, I, it's such a shame that none of the songs, uh, none of like heart, like eighty percent of that yeah. stuff never got released. And we're not just talking from from D Bridge and, and and instrumental. We're talking about everyone that was associated with it. Like there's so many ASC dubs, fucking, and um, what was his name? Um, mm. Consequence. And and like it was, I felt right right at home when I started making stuff like that. And I feel like I always remember when you, I remember started hearing the stuff you used to, and you, it seemed like you'd really felt at home doing it as well. I just got a lot of freedom out of it. You know, it was almost just like forgetting all the things that you're, you've been trying to, you've been beating yourself up trying to achieve, you know? The time before it, before Dubstep had a name, it, it was so reminiscent for me to that era because it was like, there's no rules here. It's like there was the basic rule was half time 170, so 85. But and then I had a fucking field day when I started writing that stuff. And I would never have been able to release a drum and bass track purely down because my production is not good enough, right? But then I remember they released Motorway uh, on Exit, and then I'd, I, like, I was really, like, I had so much fun. And then when I did the track um, Reflections, which was on Outside the Box, which I think was a, a heavily un underrated tune with that was me d bridge and, and instra it was like i just it's not for me to get into why the autonomic thing didn't, didn't continue forever but i mean 
I was quite sad, like genuinely quite sad when it, I could start to notice that it wasn't going to move in the direction that it could have. Yeah. I mean, I think basically sort of almost going back to like the house stuff and the way, you know, kids and people coming through think about their careers now, it's all geared towards what's going to work in a club. And the thing about the autonomic stuff is that it was tough to make it work in a club. Like when we, we booked our Bodica and we booked Debridge for substance a couple of times and, you know, I fucking love the music so much, but it was just difficult to get people to dance to it. You know, and it, I think that was basically the reason. Well, I, not the only reason, but I think it was a big kind of headwind in developing that stuff. You know, out of uh, out of their sort of you know studios. But you know, I guess that's that's the that's the nature of the beast, right? Unfortunately, yeah, it's the nature of the beast. But then and then, but the fucking annoying thing is now, like someone's a lot less influential will, who will be classed as cool will play a song from back then and be classed as a game changer, and and it's like. You fucking joking? <laughs> like, 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 really, like we've really tried to push this, and like then somebody ended up taking the clout for it, but I never actually. Like this is like this is electronic music for fucking as long as I can remember, but someone would end up taking the fame for that without actually giving a nod back yeah. to the people who done it, and I think that we could. There's a there's probably about four episodes on that on shit like that we could talk about, yeah. <laughs> but that dance very much dance with that is is a lot way I, it rolls a lot of the time, right? Totally. So. Okay, anyone who's following you will know that you're sober now, which is... um Yes. Well, I mean, I, I mean to us, like, this is definitely something I want to talk about because, I mean, a big part of your story is the perception of you as a party guy. And I know this is something which frustrates you, frustrates you to an extent, but it's obviously something you've also played up to, to an extent, too. Well, like, look, like, I was having... I was talking... Who was I talking to about this? Uh, like, look, the, the sober thing, right, is I'm not getting any younger, right? And I I let a couple of like stuff, stuff I'm not going to delve into because it's, it's, it involves other people that I can't I can't speak on behalf of. But I I let a couple of things slip, and but I acknowledged that that happened, and then I was like, and I'm just going to have a break for a bit because it's when I, and then I, I sort of sat there and thought, fuck me, I haven't had a break for since I was about sixteen, right? So. Also, what people, a lot of people now, because there's a whole generation of kids who, who, who don't know me from, from Screaming Bengal from early times, but people forget that when, especially like the Animac Presents sort of era when we, like Magnetic Man sort of era, and me and Bengal were sold on turning up and causing a fucking riot. Yeah, that's true. We were sold on that. And, and it's, I don't give a fuck what anyone says. Like, before fucking cancel culture and, and, and everything, we... We were classed, we, we were sold on being rock stars and people encouraged us to go and do fucking mad shit. Um, but what did you think about that at the time? It's fucking great. Yeah. It's fucking, we could get away with fucking anything. Like it was, like it was the worst, the worst stuff we fucking done. It was like the more praise we got. It was like, it was, but we, the thing was, I, I listened, I acknowledged it then. I know, I knew it was happening, but I mean, I was like, I've always been fucking pretty lively. Do you know what I mean? So it was, it was, I was like, I'm like, you, I'm like, you lot don't know what you're getting yourselves in for. I'm like, you want to fucking like, you want to see fucking carnage called? I'm like, I'll fucking show you carnage. Like, look what happened at Ben and Cassine when we fucking, the stage was collapsing. We caused the stage invasion. Like fucking, we got banned from Ben and Cassine. Me and Ben got attacked by the security and got fucking put. Okay. Hang on, hang on a second. C can you tell that story in some detail actually? Because I did have that on my list of things yeah. to ask you about. No, we fucking. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Start at start the beginning, yeah. So we were at Fenicastine, and we was there for a Magnetic Man show. It was like, and at this period, we have to... In context, you have to look at it like we were headlined alongside Arctic Monkeys. So we Magnet and people Magnetic Man was a big deal. Like we was we, yeah. people forget that we were fucking we would have had a number one album if it wasn't for Cliff Richard and Robbie Williams. So like that's how big we were in context. Like so we've turned up to Benicassine one night, like it's when we was touring like Fark on tour buses and shit. And we so we did Magnetic Man went really well. And then they gave me and Benga a three-hour set. And, I mean, a three-hour set playing dubstep was sort of kind of unheard of at a festival. But we'd been at the festival since about 12. Like, when you're doing that live touring sort of thing, you're there all day. And, well, look, I knew, I knew, <laughs> I knew it was going to be go a different way than it should have when I bet I bet Benger a thousand pound that he wouldn't he wouldn't streak <laughs> naked during Temper. I remember Temper Track like in the New Zealand like indie band. And the next thing, all I just see is the whites of Benger's feet, soles of his feet running across fucking stage. It's online somewhere. Have a like have a look on it's on YouTube or something. But Benger's streaking naked. I was like, fuck, he's only gone and done it. And this was at about this was at about five o'clock. <laughs> Our set, our magnetic man set went until about nine and we'd been there since 12 in the afternoon, right? To then add pokes to the mix and I fucking, we're all on one, like proper on one. So by the time we've done the Screaming Venga set, we are flying. Like we're fucking flying, like we're fucked, like fucked. And the bit, my bit used to be when I could see carnage and sue and I'd do everything to make it fucking 10 times worse. So... When security is saying stop, I'm literally on the mic. The, 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 so, like, we've, we we were renowned for doing uh, stage invasions. So, like, getting everyone up and, and then and then do shit like play Killing in the Name of just to make people go that bit madder. And so this happened. I didn't realise that Benicassim is a really Brits abroad festival because you're in a beautiful part of Spain. Like, I mean, in the middle of nowhere, you don't expect there to be so many Brits. But then later on, later on, I'd learned that it was very much sold. So, like in college, like, you know, packages, like travel packages and shit like that. So anyway, we, there's only so much, there's only so much I can describe this. You have to, anyone listens is you have to check it out. Just type in screaming, bring up in a casino. But I didn't realize how many people would get on stage and it was fucking, it got really out of control. It was like people pissing up the, pissing up the speakers and just being really token Brit. Right. And then rather than sort of getting on the mic and saying, Look, come on, guys! Like, let, let's have a good night. We just, we just encourage it, encourage it. 
so much so when you watch the video, you'll see that the table with the decks on has collapsed. Artwork's, artwork's carrying it while I'm openly fucking encouraging people to go madder. And Benga's like, I think he, there's even a point where Benga's like, what the fuck? Like, this is, this is kind of mad. The stage was going to collapse. And it was basically me and Benny thought we were fucking funny as fuck. We've walked off. So like this was, it just got too much. We realized that it was, the thing was being shut down, but we, we went out the back, like, like, like our left stage. We realized there was no exit for us to get out. They blocked all the exits and I was like, fuck, I think this is about to come on top. And then security was just like security, about three securities, like beating Benny up. I'm fighting with like two or three. And then they just put us, they took, they took me and Benny and put us on a bus. We weren't allowed to go back to the hotel. We had to basically had to leave, leave the area as soon as possible. And they sent us straight to the airport. And like, and then, cause I remember Toby, our tour manager at the time, he was like, yo, this is a really fucking big deal. Like, you, you, you've got to get out of the country now. Let's change our flight. Because I mean, that's one of, that's one of many fucking mad stories. The thing is now that behavior would be classed as really, um, negative and like bad vibes and bad negative. But at the time it was fucking a right laugh. <laughs> it was like, it was, it was fucking great. Like it was, it was just madness. You'd wake up and go, fuck me. That actually happened. I was like, like I remember when we was doing the America, we did the Screaming Benga US tour. And then it was the first time we'd done a tour bus tour. So look, look, let me just give you a fucking, a, a lineup of the people on the bus. It was me, Benga, obviously, Pokes, artwork, Jackmaster, Plastician. Um, oh, and my brother, and my brother. And I remember, do you remember a producer called Alvin Risk? No. He was sort of Skrillex's protege, but Skrillex rang me and was like, yo, can, can, um, do you look, can you do me a favor and can, can you let this, this boy do for you like the early sets on your tour? I was like, cause look, we're Mims, we used to do each other a lot of favors. I was like, yeah, cool. I didn't realise that the, the boy had gone sober and he was like, he's turned up the same day my brother's turned up in San Francisco. He, he lasted about 45 <laughs> minutes before he left. <laughs> he said, I can't do it. I can't be around these people. <laughs> and then, you know, that was the same tour where our tour bus set on fire in Chicago. Right. So there was me and Benga headlining with um, Feed Me. We did like a joint show at a really big venue in, a, I think it was Congress Theatre or something like that. Basically, we're partying on the bus after because because the drive the tour bus drivers are only allowed to drive like a, a legal amount of hours. So like there was many nights we'd be parked up and we'd just have a party, right? And then Pokes has got off to have a cigarette and he's come back on the bus and he's like he's tapped me and like sort of like, like lent into my ear and gone, "There's smoke coming from out of the bus." And I'm like, "What? So we talking about?" I didn't listen to him, so we've carried on partying. He's gone, mate. And then he's told Toby, the tour manager, he's like, fucking everyone's got to go off the bus. The bus is on fire. The bus was in full flames there. Yeah? And this is one of the most iconic stories and most funny. So, so the, the Chicago police department are there trying to put the, put the, put the bus out. And Jack, my brother has gone, wait, 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 I need to get on the bus. I need to get on the bus. So we're thinking, shit, he's left his passport or his laptop. Cause we were told to leave everything on there, but obviously everyone grabbed their like fucking main things they needed. So I'm like, shit, it must be something important because the bus is in flames. Like I'm talking, a tour bus goes up and down. I think it's about four minutes, like in, in flame. My brother's come off, yeah. He's, bear in mind, he had a double denim outfit on as well. And he's come off with a bottle of red wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, none of us could believe it. And we're all like going, why? 
the Chicago fucking fire department are looking at us like, what the fuck are these not about? I tell you, do you know what? If I, I'm just going to go through some actual stories that, that still to this day, like, like make me laugh. So another good one. I was at Creamfields, I think it was. And it was sort of, it was around the time of Skrillex's uh, Benny Bonassi cinema remix. And Benny Bonassi was playing, but no one really knew Skrill in, in England yet. So he was rolling with me. I'd be, he, he didn't know I'd been out for like about four days or so. So I'm walking around Creamfields. Benny Bonassi's played a dubstep thing on stage. I've walked up and pressed stop and like rewinded it. And he's gone, what the fuck? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Sonny Skrillex is then. Ollie, man, what the fuck? What are you doing? <laughs> but I said to Benny Bonassi, I said, if you're going to come to England and play dubstep, I said, play it proper. <laughs> and walked off, right? And at this point, I was like, I was fucking on one anyway. But like, a lot of people, a lot of people don't realise I was banned from nearly every festival in the UK before I was 21. And you can ask, you can ask like Richard McGuinness from the worst part this is true because a lot of them was his festivals and he's a good mate of mine. So there was a definitely, it's a different, it would be classed as negative like moods now, but I mean, that's, we was, we were sold on it. It was like, people let us get away with fucking murder, really. Like, but in hindsight, we didn't do stuff like, I was banned like at Creamfields one time and I nearly, I nearly killed about a thousand people because I didn't realise, I didn't realise underneath the stage was full of petrol and, and, and gas. <laughs> and I did a stage invasion. I'm like, this is how fucking, this is how fucked I was. I, it was a BBC stage and I forgot that I worked for BBC at the time. Got everyone on stage and literally the stage was bowing and it was literally going to collapse. I didn't know it was, Skrillex played before me. I didn't realise because we did, I weren't used to pyro and shit like that. So I didn't realise underneath the stage was fucking canisters oh and, and things. That, <laughs> and like, I remember like just causing carnage like, and everyone's got on, but they was like, literally the stage is, but the stage is going to collapse. And then, I, but then I, I was that gone that I didn't, I forgot that I was, I worked for the BBC and I remember getting this phone call from um, the head of BBC at the time going, can you come in please? <laughs> oh, fuck man. And it was all like, it was all live. Like it was fucking, it was wild. But I mean, look, you give a young boy fucking loads of money and, 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 and encourage him to be wild. They forget where they don't, they, they don't realize where I'm like, not where I'm from is in Croydon, but I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm from like a, sort of a mad life, do you know what I mean? So it's like, it's, it's like you go, like you sort of, you're debating, you go like, this up for real? And like, I mean that as promoters, I mean that as agents and whatever. And you're like, like you don't realise what fucking mad is. <laughs> and then you're like, you sh- like, there's been some mad, there's some, some things, some things I can't, I well can't talk about in this day and age. Nothing, I don't, when I say that, I don't mean anything yeah. in a sexual terms or anything like that. But what I mean is, I wouldn't be able to 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 explain to sort of the modern day younger like like see I don't say woke or whatever because I don't believe in woke but but I mean it's it's just it wouldn't compute in some people's heads like the way we used to cause carnage because now people would look at it as negative at the time it was fucking exciting yeah for, for the crowd or for me like for us it was just it was quite exciting for everyone it was like new rock stars do you know what I mean it's funny that isn't it because I think you're totally right there just doesn't seem to be that um it's not my expectation at all because I mean I think like as you said you were you were sort of marketed in that kind of a way but it was actually you know totally made sense too and obviously you know like think like just sorry to cut in there but yeah yeah. I think we was on the front of the Guardian or it was like front of and it was like Annie Max and Scream and Benga make Liam and Noel Gallagher are like pussies. So if that's not promo, I don't know what is. Yeah. Like that would, you wouldn't get away with putting that 
because it would be negative connotations and encouraging drug taking and drinking. Like there's a lot of things are a lot more overthought now because who are you going to upset? But I mean, that's just one example of many where it's that thing. It's, we was encouraged to be like that and we never got told off. Sorry, that sounds so childish. Told off. <laughs> but, I mean, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? We never no, understandable got, though, yeah. We never got in trouble. So what I mean is it was normal. Why would we think any different? Well, I mean, it's... I remember oh. shit started to change. Shit started to change when we got a phone call and it was like, you need public public liability insurance ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> like we broke people's legs, broke people's noses by accident. Like, but you never, we, people kept that information away from us because they didn't want to fucking, they didn't want us to like, like if someone would have told us, you crowd so you jumped off a fucking 20 foot speaker last night and, and broke, broke a girl's nose and then, then she fell and broke her leg. People didn't tell us that. We found that out like later on in time. We wouldn't have been okay with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, absolutely. I mean, as you said, like it's part of the brand that was being built around you, I guess. Do you know what I mean, and you're not always party to that, right? It's not always, you don't always get a say in that stuff. No, but it's like, it's, it's we were like, not I, like, I should never really group like, like I've been wild since I was young, right? Like, like this going back to when I was like, like nine, 10, 11, like, like, but I mean, like I always knew what was going on but you see that Benga got Benga had to uh, sort of act like he thought some shit was normal like, like all this stuff was normal mm. and it weren't like when I think about it now there was mad behaviour but I mean it wasn't classed as mad behaviour then but when I actually think about it now and like you grow up and like you actually think about different things especially look, obviously what Benny went through after you like it was actually really fucking like mental times it was it was it was modern day equivalent of like, when you think of like Ozzy Osbourne and shit like that, like there was some shit going like really mad fucking things going on. Yeah. But it was, I always knew that it was mad, but I fucking, I just buzzed off it. But I mean, when you look at people who weren't from the sort of mad surroundings I grew up in, it's like, fuck me, that was actually mad. I'm like insane. You, I haven't heard of stories even slightly similar since mm-hmm. then. I mean, did you, was there, was there ever, <laughs> I mean, I think the answer to this question is going to be no, but was there ever a point where you started to resent it a little bit in terms of being presented in that kind of a way? I mean, no, because, because I liked, I liked that. I liked party life. Like, and I still do. I still like, I like, it's not, that's not to do with the drugs and, and whatever side of it. That's to do with, I like, I like, like I grew up in pubs and I grew up in like, I like that like boisterous sort of meeting new people like in every city and like I like social side of it I really enjoy and it was it was that was ultimately where I really enjoyed like industry not necessarily industry but you know like meeting people I I love I'm I'm obsessed with the way the brain works and I'm obsessed with people and and so I really enjoyed like the carnage bits where it was like comedy sketches for me it was like oh yeah like let's go watch this stuff blah 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 but I mean I really enjoyed that that like that side of it mm. like almost as much as i enjoyed making music right. and that's so that's what we're saying saying like I, I really enjoyed it but i mean i suppose for psychiatrists here with fucking pen and paper they'd be like what the fuck <laughs> but i mean it's uh it's i mean it's sort of i never thought it was too much right but but i suppose i like i suppose I understand why I fucking like I I ended up making six tour managers leave, tour managers leave during the Magnetic Man era. Like, 
I just, I'm a, I'm a fucker. Like, <laughs> I'm just one. I'm just wondering though, like, I mean, to what extent are these two things part of you know, two sides of the same coin? Cause I mean, as you described, you know, what you get out of the studio, what you love about the studio is almost a compulsive thing. Right. And you know, partying is where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm amateur psychologizing here. But you, you see what you see where <laughs> I'm. That's a fucking that's a proper term. That's not even a word. I don't think. I just made that up. But <laughs> I love it. Love it. <laughs> but do you think? Do you think there's anything in that? I mean, do you recognise that in yourself at all? No, I guess so. Like I think now, like it's definitely, they've definitely all, all they've, they've definitely all have something in common. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, um, it's. Uh, I think it's like an it. Like I don't want to. There's. Uh, there's like I don't want to delve into like sort of my like family stuff doing too much, but I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely some sort of escapism there in all of it. Yeah, you know, like it's there's, like like bear in mind, I was bullied at school. I was like, there was like I didn't have, like I didn't have the greatest fucking when I was younger. Even when I was started making music, it was still I was still going through shit at school and stuff like that. So I mean, I suppose when you sort of by the time I'd left school, I was fucking known known name. So I guess it was it was like fucking. You just yeah. That that's always blown my mind about you. But and I don't even know how to ask it as a question because I mean you know asking someone about something that they don't know any alternative to. But it it's got to be it's what's a unique experience, isn't it? I suppose. Been in clubs nearly every weekend since I was about fifteen. Right. Yeah. More less than you. That's not that's not an exaggeration. You and mm. you know that for a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's so it's it's. Like, to be fair, I've done fucking pretty well to even, like, <laughs> mentally still be standing, really, like, in some way, because another thing with lockdown, like, going back to lockdown was I realised that I had Peter Pan syndrome. Right. And, like, do you know what I mean when I say Peter Pan syndrome? See, like, the adult who never grew up and, like, like basic things like ringing a mortgage company and, and doing things like a basic parts of other people's lives is just to something you learn growing up. I realized I'd never had to do. And it was real fucking, it was a real sobering fucking feeling. It was really horrible. And I felt like, I felt like I didn't know how to be an adult. Mm. And there's, there's multiple factors here. And it's like, that's people around me made me not never have to worry about anything and just concentrate on my music and whatever. But having kids and I was like, like everybody was fucked during lockdown. So I was like, I didn't have anyone to do all this shit for me. And I was like, generally don't know how to call Thames Water and talk about there's an issue or pay fucking ring the mortgage company, explain, try and like actually be an adult. It was really fucking horrid. Mm. Yeah. But it's madness because you just like, look, and like, this isn't aimed at anyone in particular, but I mean, when money stops coming in, you realize how many people disappear. Right. And it was, I was like, shit. And, and I felt, I actually felt a bit like a loser because I was like, I'm meant to be like looking after my family and shit. And you're like, I don't even know, like, what, what do I even say when like mortgage company answers the phone or water bill company? Do you know what I mean? Like all them sort of things. I didn't know how to talk to them. I can talk to anyone in a nightclub. But I mean, actually dealing with people on, on an all day to day basis really freaked me out. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you've got two kids, right? Yeah. But when did you have your first? So it would have been... I, I judge it by a song. What song come out at the time? <laughs> so my, son, my son's twelve now. My daughter's four. Okay. Yeah. Check this. Check this for a fucking mad thing. Both born on the same day, eight years apart. Same hospital. Same hospital room. Wow. Fucking. Both on Friday the thirteenth. Okay. 
like to, to 2011 was kind of like right in the middle of it for you right that was kind of almost... there was a lot going on. there was yeah well there was that and then it was sort of the the dubstep's dead time and then it was also finding out that my missus was pregnant i had to i had to start i hadn't i weren't paying tax up until that point right and i fucked me it's still something that, that goes on now um it's still bothering me now but i mean it was uh Basically, I needed to buy a house. Like in just old school mentality, is shit. I'm having a kid. I've got to buy a house today. I can have a house. But it's a very old school way of thinking. But it was, um, and well, that it become a catastrophic fucking uh, chain of events that still are haunting us now. Like with with regards to tax and stuff. And I've I've been quite open about about this stuff. And I tried to get the fucking board of governors to to change British education to you having to to learn tax at school. And it's still they're still not done it. But I mean, 2011, yeah, it was a lot. There was a lot going on. So, I mean, because what you've just been describing, right, is a fairly um, hey, like. unrelenting <laughs> schedule yeah. of, well, I mean, carnage was your worst, right? Yeah, and I saw it. Chaos, carnage. But then, then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, right, you've got to stop that now. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> Like, ultimately, does that make sense? Like, no one told me something, but it's like, it's just a moral thing. You're like, shit, I can't roll like this. Like, I'm, I'm going to be a parent. It's like, it's a big thing. But I know the importance of, of parents. Like, I was luckily, I know this sounds terribly, like, almost terribly sad. I was one of the only people in my area with a mum and dad. Right. Like, like a, a solid foundation, you know? So, like, for me, it was, I know how important it is, but at the same time, you're like, Fuck! It's like it's it's like it's like to boy to man in the space of about thirty seconds when you're told you're going to be a dad. Right. So it's very it's very disorientating. Did it change the way you acted at all? No, no. That's no. But it's it's, it's not. I, I, I don't say that with any pride. No, no. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think that you were. No, 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 no. Sorry, I didn't. I weren't insinuating that you was, but I mean, I, I have to point that out because sure. In social services, fucking like that. Like, you know I mean? like, it's, like, don't mean it like that. It wasn't like, like, it was just, you become programmed a certain way. Mm. And it's, it, it takes, it still, it still took, look, took like 12 years after that to, to know that it weren't right. Like, really. Mm. Like, I've, I've done all my apologies over the years, like, on personal levels with certain different people. But I mean, it was at the same time, like, Again, there's I'm I'm quite a rare case in a sense of this a, a, like my life. It's been my life forever, right? Like it's nightlife and clubs and music. That is, it's all I really know. Mm. So and then and then it goes back to that thing of people letting you do this shit and encouraging it. So it's always like it wasn't necessarily like I was doing things that I thought was wrong, but I mean. It was, I thought they were right. I thought it was okay. And it's only as you get older, like it's like sort of probably the last sort of four or five years where I think about some things, I'm like, I've, that's why when I say I've apologised to people, I'm like, shit, man, like it's fucking, it was, I, like I'll never say it weren't my fault, but I mean, it was, it was, it was, there's multiple, there's multiple avenues to, to, to how that shit ran. And that's, I'm not blaming anyone because I'd, I'd be a, I'd be a pussy to to to, to try and I've never put the fault on anyone else. But I mean, it's quite a complex situation when you think about it because I don't know anyone else about now who's who's a had the the longevity of career I've had and still be 
in the same position. Like, I mean, like I've been a headliner for since I started. Yeah. So it's like, I've not, there's not really anyone I, I can even have in common with in that sense. Like, I, I, don't, I don't, can't think of anyone. The only person I'd say is Benga, but then Benga's been sort of out of the game for nearly 10 years. Yeah. So it's, it, it's quite, a, I've had a pretty mad fucking life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I, I want to go back to that sort of idea of, you know, you being marketed in a certain way and you being, um, well, in, in a way that's kind of actually sort of, well, as you say, quite consistent with who you are mm. and what you want to do. But still, there's like, you know, you're being presented, right, in a way you're not always completely conscious of. Yeah, yeah. When do you think that, well, when did that start? Um, can you can you put a finger on it? It would be that sort of era I'm talking about when when um, I'd say it was where it started being touted would have been Magnetic Man era because obviously we were doing things like NME tours and so what year was what year was that? So what um, you'd probably be better at knowing it than me. Um, so out, so I was making the Magnetic Man album at the same time I was writing Outside the Box, so that was 2009. 2009, yeah. But then, I mean, when that's so was our first really big major deal, like the Magnetic Man thing, and but we was we were touted, we were sold as like a band. Whereas I, I never looked at us as a band because we were using laptops, right? And it was, but we was how our biggest um, outlet for promo was like NME, right? So there was no rock stars then, and NME's fucking look, they tried to live on fucking rock for as long as they could. You know what I'm saying? So they they put they pushed us to that crowd. So that's where it was in being encouraged to be like to be rock. Like, I fucking hate saying rock stars, but that's that was how it was described. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so Magnetic Man, the project, if I recall correctly, it was for a, a pretty long time uh, anonymous or semi-anonymous. I was involved in it. That's the thing. But people don't mm. people don't know a lot of people don't know the actual roots of, of Magnetic Man. It was Benga and Arthur. It wasn't me. Yeah. It was only when, so we had a, a, a thing coming from the Prince's Trust, um, like fucking RIP the Prince's Trust. It was one of the greatest things fucking for British music at a period. But it, um, they, I was working with um, Tempar at the time. So, so Sarah, Jones Manager, and it was like, they was like, look, we're really interested in this idea of Magnetic Man, but we really, we'd really like Scream to be a part of it. I felt like I was overstepping it because it weren't my project. It was, it was, it was Benger and Arthur's. Because I don't know if he was there, but the the first Magnetic Man show was at my birthday, one of my, my like sort of infamous birthday parties at four. But they did it behind a bedsheet, and all you could see was shadows. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, fucking hell, I'd forgotten that. Jeez. I was like, a part of it, but I weren't particularly comfortable at the time because I was. It wasn't my thing. Like it weren't, I weren't doing that. That was their thing. So I, I sort of got, right, and and they they wanted you basically because you were the quote unquote poster boy dubstep basically yeah. right and this is so for marketing purposes yeah. they, they want the the big name in there so yeah so that i mean that must have been quite awkward for you i guess well it is but it was like they, they were like fucking obviously like it was we were family like us not so it weren't like it was like they were like yeah fucking come on they'd like to get involved mm. so it weren't it weren't but like me always being trying to be quite individual going into going into someone else's project like, I, I sort of i ended it with um like they, they, they would never have heard me say this, but I mean, there, there was a natural thing in me where I was like, I, this ain't really my thing. But mm. it soon became my thing because it was, I was then, it was, there, look man, the fucking, whoever's idea it was, weren't stupid. It was like fucking, I became the fucking, the, 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 the menace, do you know what I mean? Okay, so and that got signed to Columbia, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess it's quite a, 
momentum of its own. I mean, that was a... Like, as I said earlier, like, like the calibre of how big it was, we didn't, it didn't feel that big. But then when I, like, when I think back now, and, and the reason we weren't number one is because Robbie Williams and, and fucking Cliff Richard done surprise albums last minute. So that's how big we were. Yeah. We were competing with Robbie Williams and Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard won the biggest and artist ever to come out of the country. Yeah. Like, headlining like fucking stages at best. Like it was, it was prodigy level big. I didn't, it didn't feel like that at the time, but when it's, what's mad is when I speak, when people like, like I meet people now and they're like, oh man, like, like fucking, it defines that put some people's like festival experiences, like going, like seeing people that, that they related to and grew up with like I dubstep fans and then being able to go and watch them at the main stage at festival and, and, and shit like that. It was, it meant a lot to a lot of people. Whereas for me, it was sort of the end of, it was, we were making pop songs over dubstep, which weren't particularly uh, uh, a, a, an allowed thing, but I, I never looked at it as a dubstep project. I looked at it as, as a, as a pop project. Right. I mean, because there was a lot of, there was a lot of flack. I mean, <laughs> yeah. When you had when you had your sort of post dubstep sort of look, like like your Joyos, George Fitzgeralds, blah blah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It was like it was, and like there was that cool sort of sound coming through. We were like the, the complete other end, but I mean we knew that that's what we was doing. We want our mine and Benga's goal from when we were making songs on PlayStation to get this sound as big as possible, and we did that, and then we handed it over to America basically. That's really interesting. I've never heard you say that before. Okay, so that was always a sort of explicit goal in your in your head. Was what I mean is, it's like it's, it's we were proud of the music we made. Like, why would you not want as many people to hear it as possible? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when you put it like that, yeah. When, um, like when everyone got really pissed that there was a Britney Spears dubstep trap, but me and Bengal were buzzing off it because if you think that was our child, like, like we. There's not many. Uh, there's not many people who can like who we were like. I'm not saying we were the first, but I mean we 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 fucking it was it was something that got invented via. Not saying just us, but I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. In 2001, 2002, me and Benny were the 12 and 13, 14 year old who who were like making a stir and coming up with something new off the back of something we were trying to create. So. For us, it was a, it was a, it was a very proud thing when we seeing like fucking dubstep songs getting Grammys, regardless of it as us winning them. We were like, yeah, man, we fucking, we 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 done what we wanted to. We got it out there as, as big as possible, you know. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's not that's not necessarily a um, I mean, an attitude. Sorry, I'm having arguments with people, but because I'd be like, like especially Skrillex, like Skrillex is a prime example. I used to, I used to get shit for being like. I'd stick up for Squares because I, I, I see I deemed him as an extremely talented producer. He he always gave props to 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 us, so it was like I think like it got really confusing for me because I was like, is what I wanted wrong? Like I wanted it to be as big as possible. Like I always did, man. I was proud of it. I'm not proud of it. Like it's, it doesn't matter whether I'm proud of how the sound turned out, but I mean the term and, 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 and the actual, the movement is that well, that's, I wanted it to be as big as possible. It was cause I was, I wanted the world to know about it. It wasn't, it wasn't specifically represented how I wanted to, but I mean, you can't, it was, that was, it's my fucking child dubstep. It's, 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 and I still, I still feel the same way about it now. Like I'm not, my thing, my fingers on the pulse of it a lot more than people, people know. But I mean, I'm, it's always like, it's like my long lost kid. I, I'm keeping an eye on, do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, 
you know, everything, I mean, that all absolutely makes sense. I mean, there is a, there's a kind of an alternative view. And I guess I'm, as you were saying that, I've really sort of, um, like comparing it in my head to the way drum and bass has been over the years and the degree of, um, like the protectiveness that people in the drum and bass scene kind of have over that music. And it does, it kind of ebbs and flows, but it's, I don't, I've never had the sense that, um, you know, the, uh, the guys who were really, you know, sort of the important guys in the early jungle scene. I don't think they had that mentality. Is that is, is that fair? Is that is that right? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah. And I'm not saying it's it's any it's any better or worse. But it's no, just... no, I, I, didn't, I didn't see what you're saying. Is like, no, I guess so. Like I, it's the first time I've really said that. Like actually, in the interview, but is it? And I, I probably should have said it more at the time because it, it was probably stopped a lot of arguments between different social demographics of people who was involved. Who who would have said those involved in the scene? But I mean. Yeah, I can't. I can't really comment on. And that was my impression of it, anyway. Though you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, they. It was quite. It was quite gatekept with it jungle and, and and whatnot. But I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing as as uh, go to techno like like, like we're, we're being underground resistance. Then, but then fucking Richie Horton being the bigger yeah. like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And then like, yeah, that's that's a good analogy actually. Same yeah. in jungle with like whether you go back to Fotec or um, like fucking Nookie or or, or to, like the old Tom and Jerry cats or Tango and Cash. Like it's but there was there would be there's that route, and but there wasn't. Yeah, no, you're right. There wasn't really. I can't really remember someone that really. I was going to say Goldie, but I mean Goldie still very much fucking made his sound, his sound, and his 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 perception of DMB is is probably different to a to eighteen year old now. But I mean, no, I suppose there has always been. I think an underground cool element of like you don't it it, it wants to be just us, just us. But I mean, I mean, I guess what you, you I guess what you've just been describing there is is more analogous to the UK garage mentality around that music. Yeah, yeah, bang on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever hear about the garage fucking, the garage meetings? I heard about the drum and bass meetings, jungle meeting. I didn't know there were any garage oh, ones. The garage meeting was what, was what influenced the, for the meetings that the drum and bass meetings, right? <laughs> Is that right? It was okay. like Dream Team and fucking Ed Case and, 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 and all them look, yeah. And basically like there was a new strain coming through, whether that be eight bar, grime, dubstep or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, they used to hold meetings, right? To like, we can't let this happen. We've got to all stand <laughs> firm. And like, it's the most dad shit I've ever heard in my life. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I remember hearing about it at the time, obviously, because where I worked in the shop, you know, in Apple, it was like, it was garage. So we, we would very much, we'd heard this shit. And it was like, it's an actual true, true thing. Yeah. 40 year old men standing in a room <laughs> trying to stop the progression of young kids making fucking, like, it's actually still blows my mind now. It's, it's like, wild. And yeah. this is, look, I, I might get flack off a couple of people because I know some of the people who are at the meeting, right? But I, I don't give a fuck. It was the most uh, nonsense, un, like, <laughs> insane thing I've ever heard of in my life. You're like, are you not for real? Like, you couldn't get more old man syndrome if you tried. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It's that like old man shouting at cloud. You know that meme where it's Abe Simpson shouting at the cloud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, what the fuck? And that was what spawned, because that become quite sort of known knowledge like that. And then, but then there was the drum and bass, some of the, say, older D&B lot. Then, then, then there was one, it was like, it become like a thing. It was like, oh yeah, we've got to have a meeting. Like we, we run this shit. And it's like, no, you don't. Like no, no one runs anything. Like, like it's, it's natural progression. I've always been very, like I, I look after a lot of young producers. Like I, I, I do as much as I can because I, I come from a good stock of 
that had people like Artwork and Danny Harrison, obviously one eight seven lockdown and Ganton and and Bobby Blanco, Mickey Moto, blah blah. But I mean, we weren't about that. Like we was actually about encouraging new generation. Like we was the new generation that was encouraged. So when you heard about not, not I never felt like I was as as screaming as as even on the early doors. I wasn't a garbage producer. I was influenced by garbage, and I was trying to make garbage and, and St. Kells come out of me. So it, I didn't feel particularly um, um, like affected by them doing that. It wasn't aimed at me and Benny. It was aimed at like just, but it was more or less aimed at promoters and that where people weren't uh, getting the money that they used to and blah, blah, blah. So, but I mean, it's still fucking the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Because yeah. these, the thing is, they're meetings. These are like old boys. These are like parents. These are like fucking, like, these are fully grown men. And you know, you're like, yo, what the fuck are you not doing? And the thing is, where we were younger, and I was a stoner at the time, so shit like this made me laugh 10 times harder than it does now. Um, tell me about Big Apple working there. <sighs> mate, it's fucking, like, uh, it was just, mate, it was, uh, you know, the thing with me was, uh, it was, um, it was the first place I didn't feel like an alien. That's the only way I can describe it. Like when I was at school, like everyone seemed to know what they wanted to do. And so when I when I started realising I like music, obviously my brother worked there. But I couldn't go there when my brother was there. So I used because I used to break into his room. I used to break into my brother's <laughs> room to like to use his decks and that. And and it it was so I'd have to go. Cause I began to buy records. This was maybe when I was, I was definitely like 11 or latest 12. I'd go, I'd have to know when he was on his lunch break. I'd go in, they didn't know who I was. No, maybe younger, maybe younger, because I remember getting lost in Surrey Street Market with my mum, so I must have been a bit younger. And it was, I was buying records, but he would have gone, what are you buying records for? You've not got decks. But I used to break into his room, right? So (laughs) it it was, it was when I, eventually, the reason I got the job there I used to get suspended a lot at school. I actually, I think I have the UK record of suspension. I got suspended 13 times. And it, it, but the way I, I used to go there. What were you getting suspended for? Ah, like, just uh, like nothing. I was never like, it wasn't like horrible stuff. It was just, basically, I, I, I can't deal with lies. Like, like, you see, I went for quite a lot of pressure at a young age. And then when, by when I got to secondary school, it was like people, like when teachers line, they go, this like, for example, like this exam when you're 10 is the most important thing of your life. It's bullshit. It's not. Mm, and yeah. I'd be like, I'd question it. I'd go, it's not the most important thing in my life. Like, it doesn't determine my future. Teachers really didn't like that. And, but they'd say, they'd say that I was being disobedient, like I'm a fucking dog or something, right? <laughs> I went to Catholic school and it was, I just couldn't, I just, I didn't, I like, I could always see through the bullshit. And that's not. The problem with authority. Yeah, but it was like the things, and it's still now. I look at it when, when with my kids at school, and it's like, for example, like my fucking my my son was, oh, and I like well, when he's just started nursery, like whatever, but his first year of primary school or infant school, like the fucking teacher said, oh yeah, his handwriting's not up to scratch. I said he's fucking four, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know that bullshit like that because it puts yeah. pressure on parents, puts pressure on children, and blah blah blah. But and it's all. Ultimately, they don't admit it, but it's all because of of, of the shit they're going through and, and what they're made, they're forced to do. But if they was a lot more honest with kids and and a lot more honest with, on a whole, that, look, there's a higher power that's making us be cunts to you. You'd have teachers, no, no, but kids and teachers would have a lot of better relationship. There's a lot more honest with kids because they look at, especially that pre-teenage, they look at you, they, they 
they know more than you and they're better like but when really yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. learn from a book or whatever anyway <laughs> but um so Sorry. when i yeah. started going to the shop i needed to like do something with my days when i was suspended because stupidly they used to give you the suspension letter in your hand and expect you to go home and give it to your parents right <laughs> I sussed that first. I'm like, why the fuck am I going to go home and give it to mum and dad to get in trouble? You know? So what I'd do is I'd, I'd get ready for school in the morning, um, pretend to go to school. And then I'd, I'd just sort of walk around for a bit, like around Croydon, like fucking whatever, like don't know, going in like games workshop or going in like, like going, you know, like, like, uh, like game shop, like where you could go and play mm-hmm. computer or whatever. This was before truant officers. So it was, it was, you could just sort of just, you took your tie off, took your school tie off and just sort of open your shirt, whatever. And then so I just sort of mill about and then the record shop would open. I'd sort of go in and go, oh, you're all right. And like, this is by the time they knew I was Jack's brother. And, and then it'd be like, it'd be like, how come you're not at school? Because everyone, basically everyone was t- petrified of my dad. So they, they, um, it would be, they'd be scared that, I'd have to lie to them and go, oh yeah, like it's, it's teacher training day or whatever, but it, it become, <laughs> it become every other day. <laughs> and they were like, but the, how I got the, how I got the job in, in Apple was, I was just there all the time. Like just not buying records. I was just there. I just liked it. I really liked to like, just listen to tunes on that all day. And, and then I mean, listen, if you're going to fucking keep hanging about, get behind the, get behind the counter. And that was how my job started. So like, this was, I must've been, what year do you do work experience? Uh, when he's 16 or something, usually, is it? No, 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 it's not because it's, 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 so it's, I think it's about 14 turning 15 because they're getting you ready to leave, right? But I remember I'd been working in Apple for, I think, about maybe a year and a year and a half before work experience, right? No, it's year nine, it's year nine you do work experience. And I had to pretend, and everyone in the shop, like John and, and Arthur and all that, had to pretend that I was on my first day and I was doing work experience. <laughs> not that I'd been there, that I'd been there for a year and a half anyway. So like you could basically someone from the council or someone from the education thing comes down to like, see how you're getting on at your work experience. I had to like dumb myself down going, oh, so how do I sell records and how do I do this? But it was like bullshit. I'd been working there for fucking ages anyway. So it was, um, my, honestly, that place, like it was fucking, it was like, it, it's a really like, I cried when the day when you remember that like, record shop closing and, and like, mm. you remember that era. It was a really shit era, man, for everyone. But it, and I cried when it shut, but I mean, it was the first place, regardless of my age, like where age didn't, wasn't a factor. Right. And you, and I used to love it. So like, for example, I'd be, I'd, I was having conversations with, with, with businessmen, like, like who was buying records on their break. And then I'd be having conversations with like ghetto, ghetto kids or like all walks of life. And there was, when you walked through the door, all perception, everything was gone. Like it was, you was just there because you all fucking loved it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people from the, especially the early record shop days will, will have a similar type feeling or story, regardless of what age you entered that it was, you felt like, like you never really, like it's never really sort of popular people. Like if, or people who would deem like, like, like the cool, there was never really a cool kid who come in. It was always someone like everyone has their first record shop entry. You don't really know what to do. You don't know how to approach the till. You don't know what to ask for. You don't, you don't want to ask for a song if it doesn't make you look like if it's cheesy or whatever, like that perception. But I mean, everyone's got that first first record shop thing. Because mine was, I didn't realise. The first time I went in the shop, I must have been 10, 11. 
So I, 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 I went in and I, I've, I didn't realize I broke one of the cardinal rules of, of, of record shops. I, I said, can I listen to that song? And it's at the top, top of the racks. You've got to get on a ladder to get it. Got, them, got it down. At this point, they didn't know I was Jack's brother. So that's, this is what I was talking, sort of t- touched on earlier. And then I got them to play it and they said, oh, do you want it? I said, no, and left. It was only when I started working there that I realized it's the worst thing you can do. Like it's literally like the most frustrating thing you can do because they've got to get up, get it, play it, you listen to the whole song. You don't want to buy it. Well, generally, nine times out of ten, anyone who does shit like that, anyone who wants to listen to the entire song, they're not going to buy it because they know if you're going to a to, to and you ask for a song, it means that you know what the song is. Right. Well, I didn't realize I broke the cardinal rule. And they were like, <laughs> it's like the look you get when people do that. It's like it's fucking. It's, they, it's like I suppose if you get it ten times a day, it becomes quite tedious, but. But um, but the shop was just it was just magical. Like again, like the the main thing for me was it made me feel like I had a I had a space and I had a, I actually had somewhere where where I I felt at home, I guess. Hmm. And it's like look, I I had a, it was a really cool crew. They really like look whether it be JJ Lewis from like Southside and even Sammy B, who's sketch when that's manager now used to run what was it Essential? He ran Essential Distribution and hmm. like there's people like like Paul and Stilly used to do um. All, all the like things like magical things that like on the Friday I'd hang around and like they'd let me have a beer or whatever and, and like you'd wait for the distributors to turn up to hear the new records that come out in the next week and it was like really felt a part of something you know mm. and it's why I touch on again I was so like I, I burst into tears when they told me the shop was shutting because I didn't it was I was like fuck like where do I get luckily like the sort of velvet room stuff and, and then the plastic people so there was still that community but it was still like it was, I felt like at home, you know, it was a, like, so if you actually look at the influence that shop had, as much as Rhythm Division had on, on sort of grime for us, like look, Lofa, I was, I was there when Lofa first bought his first demo, which was Indian dub. And it was mm-hmm. like this, he was, if you ask him, yeah, he was, he was petrified. He was shaking when he'd come in, but we yeah. were all really friendly. That was the thing. But then you, it, it takes you back to your first record shop, like entrance like oh, it's block. always extremely intimidating extremely, for sure like, do you remember going black market and shit back in the day like <laughs> yeah I, I used to go to black market because my brother was working at the shop and i weren't meant to be buying records and meant to be whatever because obviously i didn't have decks i'd tell my mum that i was going to create with my friends i'd go on my own get the train up to Soho, and i'd be like keep looking at my fucking watch like to like shit like i've been i've been like 45 minutes now it's going to start getting on top like that my mum's gonna start thinking, I, I used to have a pager as well, like if I could to get like my alert to come home. And it would be like I'd be like shit and like you go into black marketing. Well I was used to creating, but it was I, I was I couldn't I didn't have time to listen to anything. So it'd be like I remember buying Super Sharp Shooter from 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 Black Market when it first came out on White Label. Or like <coughs> not, sorry, not the original, not the original Ganja Crew press, but I mean the zinc, you know, like the the the, the main one. Um, and it was, I remember being like, shit, I'm in, like, I'm right. Like, whilst also panicking, I need to get back to Croydon before my mum realises sake's going on. It's like, it was, and I remember that intimidating feeling because you're like, because you've got, you've got the record shop connoisseurs who know where to stand and know, and they, yeah, they know yeah, yeah. there and, and, and it's just like, it's, do you know what? I, it's, it's really sad, right? That, that there's, that movement and scene is never going to happen again. Yeah, I mean, that was the kind of question I was going to ask, actually, because I mean, one of the things I've talked about quite a bit recently on the show is 
how scenes develop out of really sort of quite tight geographical areas and how lots of those kind of the opportunities have just gone you know whether it's record shops or i think to a to a large extent now like small clubs are really under pressure and you know the way people interact is just is just online right and with small clubs it's, it's terribly sad yeah so i mean do you i mean how do you think that gets solved i mean can it be solved like in terms of like is there an alternative that's going to create a sound create create a scene that you know the kind of scene that gave birth to dubstep or whatever Discord seems to be the equivalent of a fucking metal shop now. Can it? Can that? Can that do the same thing though? No, 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 no. Of course it can't. It's mm. be- because the problem is, is that so like, I feel like you see record store kids yeah, are the equivalent of of loner gamers. Yeah, where it's it's but they they find their they find their solace in 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 online conversation and and shit like that. Whereas we found it. It's like there's not much difference between a lot of us. Well, I, I, sh- I really shouldn't say us, but I mean, like, I, I think I know I've known a lot of people over a long time, like yourself, and and like, especially I can only ever talk about where I'm from, and I, I, there's, there's something we'll always have in common because we all sort of came from the same thing, right? But I think we was all sort of I think everyone found their thing of I think when they found that the record shop because if if you say you wasn't very great with chat, you didn't really need to be great with chat because you was, you was there, but you still had something in common with everyone. Whereas maybe in your normal walk of life, you wouldn't have had anything in common with someone. So there was that thing. It was like a natural, like it was really enjoyable. Like, mm. Oh man, there's so many people I could, I could say like who used to come in and it was, I knew them through the record shop. And then it was when I'd get to know them and start hanging around with them. Some people know the dubstep thing. I won't mention the name because it's not, maybe not a bit inappropriate, but I mean, I'd go, they was a different, completely person in the record shop than when I got to know them and went out and like, you see, you see the similarities in them and you, like whether it be slightly insecure, slightly like not great at conversation, but it was like that thing. Everyone seemed to be super comfortable in the shop. Yeah. i tell you another thing. I don't know if I've ever told you this. This is just at the, sh- at the record shop. And I'm, I'm like, I've been telling people this recently. It's blown their minds. I've always mentioned it. Do you know, I used to make ringtones, official ring, knock your ringtones for, for artwork. No. <laughs> so if that. you had Daniel Bedingfield, got to get through his ringtone. I made that. <laughs> really? I made Mentor Sounds of the Future one. I made, um, <laughs> I got myself together, Don Perignon. And I, I'm pretty sure I invented the, the, the monophonic spin back. <laughs> Are you serious? Square down, ask Arthur. Ask Artwork. Artwork will back me there. Mad, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I used to make tunes on the Nokia before, like whilst I was making tunes at home. And Arthur was like, whenever he had a big tune coming out, he was like, oh, can you make this to me? I'd be like, yeah, boom, do it. Really? It's probably, I probably owed a fucking small fortune off yeah. of that. To be fair. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you, get, do you get my similarity with what I say with like, like loner gamers and, and sort of early? Yeah. Like yeah. it feels, I feel it really, it resonates. I get it. Like when my son's, at home and he's like talking to his mates on, on the headphones and that and he's, he seems a lot more confident then when then maybe if I threw him into a social situation with people he don't know but I mean that's that is for me that is the record shop it's really interesting actually yeah I totally see that but I wonder I mean and maybe this exists somewhere maybe there's a a small scene of a few people communicating like that who are swapping tunes and who are doing some really crazy shit. That's, that's completely possible. But that's just what I've wondered, like whether it's going to be, whether it's, because I just don't think that's really emerged. I just, like, look, there's, there's amazing music being made. 
there is. But I mean, there is a lot of like, uh, over the last, I expected it to come from lockdown. Mm. But the, the, I was very disappointed in some of my contemporaries and some people I had mad respect for, like, because I was it really, how buzzing I got when I was in the studio. I don't mean buzzing getting high, I mean buzzing in a good way. Yeah. Um, how excited I was for what I was making. When I thought about certain producers that I was really into, I thought, yeah, man, I'm really excited to see what they come out with. And people were still, you realise people who were trapped in club culture and they were still making club records during lockdown when there's no clubs. Mm. Like, I got a buzz off making... 100 BPM ambient fucking that goes into Esky, I don't know, whatever. But I mean, it was, I think, the normality and, and the boringness of a lot of music that came out of lockdown then spurred a load of generations, like, uh, 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 not generations, but I mean, a load of producers were like, nah, we, we don't want to be associated with this basic fucking boring club music. And I'd, I've seen an influx of really good stuff, especially like the garage movement, the young garage movement, like people like your Sammy Verges, and then you've got Nicky Nairs, and you've got like... Mm-hmm. America has really got their finger on the pulse in 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 um creative like original stuff. Mm. There's a lot of good shit coming out of the states and the states do get bad flack like in in general but I mean some of the best stuff like look you Nick, Nicky Nair is a fucking bad boy he like, is. yeah and and they're really open here now which is obviously I've been playing in the states since I was 18 but like now it's really I can like I can do me like what I really want to do like all over the shop when I'm DJing and it's really fucking accepted here more so than in the UK now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just wonder whether um, I mean, like, absolutely, there's like examples of of great stuff and there's great producers making great music. I just the problem is there's, there's a really high influx of shit. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely yeah. true as well. I just I think I'll get, I'll get I'll get in a lot of trouble for saying that because but what I mean is it's. It's safe. There's a high, let's right, right. Rather than saying shite, there's a high influx of safe music, mm. and it's not what it ain't. What my like for me, my, that's not my dem. I don't want my demographic to be safe, yeah. and that's why this scream is a mate because probably not going to do as, as great as I think it should do. But at least I can stand there and go, like people wouldn't. A lot of people don't have this mindset of like it's like how much money can I get out of this? Whereas mine is actually. Is this going to be like a like a stepping stone like on 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 something where I can go? Yeah, like like it's my body of work from that time, and I'm really proud of it. Yeah, but it's, I'm not actually thinking, oh shit, how much, how many gigs can I get out of it or whatnot? It's like I'm it's content, and I think there's not a lot of think there's not a lot of feeling of content anymore. In a, in a sense of there's ulterior motive. Like some people will make tunes to get more DJ sets. Yeah, I mean that's that's always going to be bad music. Not because the studio's their safe place when they feel comfortable and feel at their most like vulnerable almost, you know, like, 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 like where you can, it's like my studio is, if I'm really badly stressed or whatever, I know as soon as I walk in there, whether I'm making something or whether I just fucking just hit play, like fucking play on one of my synths and, and just, just fuck about for a minute. Like I, I, I'm instantly de-stressed. You know what I mean? And I think that's, it's always been my safe place. Not safe place. That sounds like fucking a little bit. No, I absolutely know what you mean. A hundred percent know what you mean. Yeah. And then that stems back to record shop. And I think that ties back into what I was saying about the record shop and shit like that. You know, like it's, it's, it's where you are actually genuinely happy, like in, in that environment. And I feel like that just environment in general has gone because obviously, and then touching back on the Instagram thing and where, what your level of success is. My level of success is if I can actually, if I've got time in a day where I can go and sit in the studio because I'd, I, I, I'm at a point where, 
I can do that. So that's success for me, being able to go and be in my fucking happy place whenever I choose. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, the last couple of things. Um, there's, fact, there's two two shows that I want to ask you about specifically. First of all, when you played at Panorama Bar very early on. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about tell me about that. So I've never I I think I've had a brief conversation with you about this, but I've never really heard the story properly. So when was it? Like two thousand and six or something? Yeah, it was. Do you know what? It was mad. It was when uh, like how fucking the world turns out. It was. It's when I first met Cassie. So Cassie was. I went. I went. I was being filmed on the day, and I, I went down to Hardworks, and um, that's how I met the Hardworks crew. And it was. What was the main guy's name with the long hair? Torsten. From from Hardworks, yeah. Yeah. So like he, I like my memory's obviously a little bit shattered over time, but what the story I've always said, and like it was, he was there. He, like, it might be worth asking him about this as well. But I was I was on really early playing dubstep in Panorama Bar, which is ultimately like a fucking high level quality house room, right? Generally, the highest, arguably. Like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like yeah, so I probably sort of undersold it there, but you know what I'm saying? So it was, they, they booked me to play dubstep, right? So that was all good. Like, there was, I didn't really, like, it's only now I didn't realise. This is well before Bergheim was what it is now, and so what it's perceived as being now. Love Parade era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so, because Love Parade was on, it was that weekend. It was Love Parade was on that weekend, because I remember, I remember taking a pill and fucking, I left the club at, like, I finished at about 12. And I was walking outside. I was like, "Why is there so many fucking people here? Like, ain't it shutting soon?" And someone was like, "I remember someone looking at me." And I'm whilst I'm puking in the fucking stones outside Bergen, right? But what happened was, so I used to have this. I used to have quite sensitive skin. <laughs> it makes me sound like such a wanker. <laughs> but, um, and you know, smoke machines. So basically, the early door smoke machines had this had some sort of chemical in it. And it used to make my face come up in a really bad rash right. and make my face really itch. And the guy. Whoever was manning the sound desk and smoke machine, I asked him to stop doing it and he kept doing it. And during this time, I'm still fairly young and I'm still fairly Croydon, right? And I said, don't fucking do it again. And he kept doing it. He was winding me up. Like, it was, it was terrible. Like, and it was Torsten who sort of ran over before, let's say, it escalated. <laughs> right, okay. But I was, it was like, can you imagine? Like, I already felt insecure being in there playing what I was playing. But yeah, the fucker right. was driving, just winding. Like, but I don't know why you do that. It doesn't make any sense, but he was doing it. And because I asked, if you ask someone to stop doing something and they don't stop doing it, well, look, look, there's, there's a lot of fucking situations you could say that where it's just not okay. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know what, I, I doubt the guy still works there. What did, what did people make of your set? Um, I, to be honest, I can't really remember, man. But I, I like, I didn't leave there on a low. Yeah. Like, if that makes sense. Like, I remember leaving feeling like, like it wasn't like, oh, that was a really bad show. Or like, it didn't work. It was people were there and there were some people who knew what I was playing. There was some, there was like, it was the first time I played dubstep to a guy in a full gimp outfit, like tied to the front <laughs> of the pool. But it was like, I, 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 my, my, a lot of my dad's friends owned gay clubs in London when I was growing up. So I was used to, it wasn't like some stuff I'd never seen before, you know? Mm. Yeah. So it was like, it was, I just enjoyed it. I just, at, around that time, it was, it, regardless of it was Panorama Bar, it was anywhere else in the world. The, the, the sound was still so early. I didn't expect to go, to go anywhere and it'd be like, like, especially in another country. And I know it sounds so silly now, but 
but it was it was like it was I was there representing something that people ain't heard before. So I was a lot more um, accepting of um, it not being London. Yeah, and it was because I was very proud to represent this music. You know, totally. So the other one was the dubstep set at Coachella recently. Oh, it's fucking went right off. Yeah, the Doolab one. Like, well, the thing was, when I was looking, so that wasn't, that was never planned. I, the Doolab is a bit like, well, for people that don't know, the Doolab is always secret guests and there's always a big secret guest. Um, and I, they asked me to do it. When I looked at the set times, the set lengths, sorry, it was an, only an hour. And I'm like, Glitch Mob were on before me are really old friends of mine, like from, from like 2006 Shambhala days. I looked, it was an hour and I thought Coachella is a place. It's the Abercrombie and Fitch of festivals. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, that's the right. The Doolab is, um, is, is somewhere where you can actually people expecting something surprising and saying they're not expecting. So when I looked at the set time, I thought I can't play house and techno or disco or anything in an hour, anything with songs over three minutes, you can't do in an hour. Mm. Right. And I thought, right, like I know what's going to work here, but I don't, the money that I could earn in America from doing that, it would be, if I was to speak to agent or management or whatever, it would be like this could necessarily damage the, the finances you could earn, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So I didn't tell anyone I was going to do it until I was at the airport. And then what? Then I started to think, I started to think, right, well, I need to, I need to test the water here because... Because like the sort of rising tech house and stuff, I didn't want there to be a load of fucking people turn up to see me play, play what I'm not gonna. And then I sort of tested the water. And I said, I'm not sure. I put it on Twitter. By the time I landed and got there, turned up and fucking at that point, I was just sitting. I was just sitting with John Summit and and and, and a couple of other people at stage. And at that point, it was like, oh, what are you gonna play? I'm like, I'm fucking. I really don't know. I don't know at the minute. And then I went out. And then the thing is, glitch mob. Like we've got quite a long history. Like, and then I, when I, I say again from that early Shambhala, it was quite an iconic year of Shambhala, 2006, 2007. Cause it was like, I used to get, I used to get pegged off with like deadliest and, and, um, no such thing and, and glitch mob. So like, when, it was like, if you played alternative bass music, you just all got thrown into every room too. Yeah. Really exciting time. Actually. But then um, I turned up and I was like, I knew it was going to go off. Didn't realize how much it was going to go off, but also. I hadn't had a, I don't, I don't had sort of a full freestyle set in in mm. that context. But it was like fucking, it was like riding a bike. Yeah. And it went like, there's that video, there's that famous video of me doing um, that's Freak Lane next hype and um, Joe Conginzi's I think Purple City. Mm. And it's that bit when you actually look on the stage, it's Damien Lazarus, Michael Beebe, fucking uh, AC Slater. There's that Danny United, and there's fucking every. It was like it was literally my history of people that I know and <laughs> from different walks of life absolutely causing it and it was it was the i was I, I fucking i think it was billboard for coachella i think it was coachella week one or week two whatever and it was the highlights were billy ellis and scream at the doula but the thing what the thing i know how things work now is especially for a place like coachella that is a very controversial like there's it wasn't i thought about it a lot like what and i just thought if at festivals like that, it's you, you need to leave your name on people's lips. Yeah. Ultimately, that's because what it is, because especially attention span and everything shit like that now. I just thought, what can I do? 
And then I have to praise whoever posted that video. There's that one where AC Slate is losing his fucking mind, right? And Chris Lorenzo, like, there's a full crew there. And it was, it be, it's become quite famous. I did one recently at, at Shambhala. Um, so I've known the crew there for fucking, they've known me through my entire career. And they, they, they do a thing called Renegade Set, which is basically all the stages shut. And then you just, you go and play a set on one stage. I've, I, I was meant to play about an hour. I never realised I had six and a half hours worth of dubstep on one of my keys. <laughs> I ended up playing all day. I refused to get on my plane. I refused to go. And I played, it was the first place in North America, uh, first festival in North America, I played dubstep. And that was how, your, that's where your excisions and your datsics and all people like that heard it for the first time. So then, and then fast forward, I ended up playing six and a half hours all fucking day of like stuff, but it was stuff from like 2002 to sort of 2010. Really enjoyable actually. Yeah. And there's loads of videos and shit now, but I mean, like, I don't do them. I never do them. Like, I've had, I get offers come in to do it, and I say no. And then it's the ones like you do labs, and then you're, you're like renegade sets at Shambhala are the ones that I really enjoy because it's not, I can, I can approach it like actually how I used to approach it, and actually it's there because I'm fucking, I'll present the shit that I love and, and, and really believing or, or whatever like of the songs especially now that like, people are actually really interested in history so it's I, I can play stuff like Benga's fucking walking bass from 2002 yeah. and a lot of oh, early Benga stuff I love that step I preferred that to half step because obviously I was a garage kid yeah. so it was when I'm playing stuff like that and it's still it blows my mind how fat it still sounds even in, in, in where there's been so many fucking progressions in technology and, and and how easy it is to make stuff sound good some of that shit still sounds better than a lot of stuff today yeah but it's um yeah like it, I, I like approaching these sets like completely blind and because that was the vibe back then you know like it's not about pre-planned sets but i, I understand pre-planned sets because in an hour and especially the impact to live performance has now on sales and whatever i get it but I mean, when I approach it on that sort of rago fucking absolutely aggy approach where I'm like spinning shit out and like fucking, you know, just that, that no, no rule shit. I just I fucking, I, that's when I enjoy it the most. Yeah. Fucking absolutely. Anyway, man, listen, this has been, this has been great. Thanks for your time, man. It's been awesome. It's been fucking brilliant. You know what? Fucking, it's actually been really good. I just, like, I just, so obviously because I've known you so long, man. there's no, I haven't, I haven't approached it with that natural thing where I'm like, this is going to be boring as fuck. <laughs> no you know what i mean you know and you're just totally like right. you can totally. like, there's mate, listen there's nine out of ten interviews i can write down what they're going to ask and it's bollocks isn't it, really but it's like i really enjoyed it mate thank you so much yeah that was scream i think i mentioned up the top that we first met more than 20 years ago and obviously he mentioned that at the end there too i've definitely never talked to him for two hours at a stretch though and this is what yeah one of the great things about doing a podcast like this is having the opportunity to sit down with people and you know just talk one-on-one for an extended period because i mean even with your good friends that very rarely happens doesn't it so i just got a lot out of that conversation i learned a lot about him and it was really interesting to hear him talk about you know stuff like i suppose what i found most interesting about that conversation was you know how he was marketed and his involvement in that. Because, I mean, on the one hand, you could quite easily paint that as a kind of sob story. But, you know, as you will have noticed, he was completely on board with the whole kind of hedonistic image 
that he inhabited at that point. And by all accounts, and according to him, he had a lot of fun doing it. So, you know, fair play. I mean, it's probably an exaggeration to say this, but, you know, we've talked before on the show about how rock and roll is essentially dead or sex, drugs and rock and roll is essentially dead. But maybe Scream was the last one of those DJs before the current puritanical wave took hold. And I don't know about you, but from my perspective, fuck that puritanical wave, to be honest. Anyway, we're done here. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. A reminder to pick up Screamism 8 when it comes out on Friday. You could also pick up my single, True Love, on Friday. Pre-order the Hardcore Heaven 2 vinyl. That would be good. And check out those other releases I mentioned too. The Bodhi EP uh, in particular, in my opinion, is absolutely awesome. It's called Edge of Blue. So yeah, go and check that out. It's um, it's really, really great. Hotflush.bandcamp.com to get a hold of that. Okay, yeah, we're done. Reminder about Patreon, patreon.com slash official. If you want to support the show, there's bonus stuff that goes up there regularly. So yes, do that. The Spotify playlist, there's a link in the show notes. Hundreds and hundreds of tunes, all the podcast episodes. That'd be good too. Good for you to follow. In fact, and that's not just a plea. That's actually useful <laughs> to follow that. And join us in the Discord. There's a really good bunch of people in that Discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to get in there okay we're done I'll see you back here same time same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast thank you Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.